Hello, everybody, and welcome to a French Village podcast. I am joined by my brilliant friend, Ben Wittes, and we are breaking down episodes five and six. Ben, hello. Hey, Sarah Longwell. How are you? Great. I was, I needed a second to remember if five and six was right, but it's right. It is. It is episodes five and six, uh, uh, full of, uh, terrorist planning, uh, 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 broken hearts, Mm. multiple broken hearts, Mm. and, uh, uh, crazed adultery with Nazis. It's, it's an action packed few episodes. It is an action-packed couple of episodes, <clears throat> and I'm I'm going to warn you up front that um, I just I, I've been thinking a lot in the, my rewatching about Lucienne, and I didn't I was like a big Barrio person in the first go round, and and admittedly he's starting to hit uh, his 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 really his like good story arc here uh, where he gets to be like a real mensch, um, except. I just in evaluating it in a second watching. I just want to say this. You know, we've we've been talking about Lucienne like as a as a bad decision machine. And, and and she is. Okay, but but let me just let's throw something at you. Okay? All right. She has fallen in love with a German soldier. This is a tale as old as time. This is Romeo and Juliet. This is this is Tony and Maria. It this is, is Summer of My German Soldier. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it's every, it's, you know, beauty and the, whatever. The point is, is that this, this story of love across boundaries created by others is like, when was the last time you went around blaming Romeo or Juliet, uh, for not the bad, they make some bad decisions through the course of their whole thing, but like the, 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 the decision to fall in love, do we don't fault them for that? We're on their side. Uh, hang on a second. First of all, I think we would evaluate Juliet's decision making a little differently if Romeo were a Nazi soldier invading her town. Uh, well, okay. My retort to that would be that uh, Romeo was um, a philandering jerk, part of the uh, the familial clan that had been tormenting her family directly um and had been involved in a you know um well Hatfields McCoy type tit for tat for a long time yeah but first of all um you know the opening line of the of the the uh the play two families alike in dignity right um uh establishes that we're not dealing with Nazi occupier versus French villager. We're dealing with, you know, uh, an elite, uh, two uh, decent families who have this crazed uh, hatred of each other. Um, And so they're set up as as kind of parallel. I don't think... um, Now, look, I don't want to be too hard on Lucienne for falling in love with Kurt, because Kurt seems like a nice guy despite his affinity for Bruckner. Um, I think we can be hard on Lucienne for, uh, well, getting a bunch of kids killed in the first episode. That was not a good thing to do. Secondly, being uh, really quite relieved when the letter of dismissal uh, comes to the school and it's not for her, it's for her boss, because... her boss is Jewish. 
Lucien doesn't actually seem to have too much of a moral core, although one is kind of poking up every now and then. I also think um, she, uh, you know, there's an interesting little moment at in the preparation for the Catherineette uh, uh, um, party or pageant or whatever it is at this uh, in this episode where um, the uh, you know Mrs. Schwartz, who is once again in a fierce competition with Hortense for the most loathsome person in the show, um, uh, is you know goes on a tirade. Um, uh, and behaves once again really badly and talks about, you know, Jews and Freemasons. And uh, and then Berio um, uh, stands up to her. And Lucien later thanks him for standing up for me rather than for the more general uh, moral stand that he took against a bully. And so I think you can... You can judge uh, Lucien. Lucien's fundamental problem is that she's dumb and <laughs> and sort of narrow as a human being. She's not a bad person. She's just an insignificant person. And it portrays her, uh, I think, I, I don't fault her for Kurt. Um, I fault her for making a series of decisions that have very bad consequences for other people and herself without a lot of thought to how she gets there. Yeah. Okay. So I agree with it, but like, this is I just think that the characterization of like, she gets a bunch of kids killed. Like there was a German in a plane with guns that decided to strafe children who were out in an attack. Um, and so she shows bad judgment that gets them into that predicament because she's following, as I recall, that other teacher that they seem to have like crushes on each other. Uh, we don't really get that doesn't really get to play out because uh, he gets hit in that attack. But I just I, I don't know. I I think you're right that she is um, dumb might be. I think she's 20. Is I mean, I, I think I think that is uh, and not not to cast, you know, aspersions on all 20 year olds, but. Let's but just... you but you'd like her to be a sort of 20-year-old with a tiny bit of the 20-year-old rage at authority. Uh... Right, she doesn't seem to have any of that. Well, yeah, she's Catholic. Very Catholic. Well, uh... like as uh, as a Jew, I'm not going to, you know, like, you know, there are people who like she could be mad at Germans for occupying her town. She could be mad at the authority system for uh, firing her boss. She, instead, she just has this sort of pained look on her face all the time. She could be pissed off at Berio for being this kind of uh, sweet guy who's uh, who's just waiting, rubbing his hands together while her life falls apart so he can swoop in and save her and marry her um, and being relentlessly obvious about it but she's not really mad about any of this stuff she's just uh as one of our listeners uh put it uh exhibits goldfish energy yeah i i I, that was a great great um way to put it great characterization uh i just will say to cap this particular piece off that uh neither hortense or janine 
vile as both of them are, are the worst characters on the show. But that's true. The worst characters, Heinrich, Heinrich Müller, Müller. Yeah. and and he's he's a real bad guy in these episodes. Um, Not to be confused with Robert Mueller. No, he was a good guy. <laughs> yeah. Good guy. Proving that um, your your name being Mueller does not end the conversation. Yeah. Okay, so let's just – I'll just hit some of these plot points that kind of get us into what's happening. So the episode five starts with um, uh, Dr. Larche trying to figure out where all the food is that's supposed to be there. Uh, but he doesn't – he can't figure out how to do the math on it. And it turns out young Sarah – uh, who is continues to be their maid at this point, um, has a background in some accounting because she used to help out her grandfather uh, and is able to help him put together what is happening to all this food that is supposed to be coming in and is instead um, going into the black market. Uh, and this storyline is interesting because it kind of like brings a whole bunch of different characters and storylines in like together. It ties them together, right? So um, the we see as as uh, as Doctor Larche is trying to figure this out, he goes to Dick Cavern, who has been taken off his assignment as a cop, um, but still he he he's trying to get him to help him figure this out. So they kind of stake out the warehouse. They see a guy who's who's running this thing, they bring him in, and they figure out that not only is he um, the deputy prefect, Servier's uh, ne'er-do-well nephew, um, but they also find out that this, or we also find out as viewers over time, that that this guy is somehow connected to Caberni, uh, who gets pulled out of the river. Uh, <laughs> the body gets pulled out of the river, uh, who I, I believe at the second episode. And so, um, so now you have... Caberni uh, and Schwartz, his murderer, connected to um, the ne'er-do-well nephew who is operating on the black market and who's now connected to Dr. Larche, who is trying to bust these guys so he can get the food to real people. Um, and and all of that's in there together. Did I miss anything? But it all kind of centers around that storyline. Yeah. So, And the storyline is actually over two episodes because uh, the body is not pulled from the river – until toward the end of episode six, uh, whereas the bust of the uh, the smuggling ring, the black market ring, is in is the previous episode. So this is clearly uh, going to be an important plot line, both for uh, you know it causes Dick Avern to be reinstated. It also uh, means that. It, and it also connects that to Schwartz, who, of course, killed uh, Caverni and uh, dumped his body in the river and is just conveniently there with Marie when the body gets pulled out of the river. Um, yeah, so there's a few, I think, a few really interesting things about this plot line. So the first is that it is uh, making clear that Sarah Meyer, the maid, who is, as listeners will remember, Jewish, is actually turning into a significant character here. And that becomes clearer over the course of the couple episodes, as she is the other person who knows that Hortense is off uh, uh, cavorting with Heinrich Müller. Um, and um, and she is an in increasingly close to Larche, uh, Danielle Larche, in a way that is um, 
interesting and uh he clearly has very high regard for her she she has been an almost in, invisible kind of object sort of character so far but now we learn that she's very smart and she uh she actually does the forensic accounting that helps him uncover this uh this black market ring he is enormously impressed with her and then on the hortense side she is bold enough to in the in the second episode uh express sympathy with him which you know rather than staying in the character of the servant who never says anything she actually says to him i'm sorry you know i'm sorry this is happening and he responds to her you know in a kind of stoic way but he definitely notices that she has sort of stepped out of her role as you know quiet object who pours coffee and um and he is now like engaging with her as a human being which is a really interesting uh thing across you know class uh which of course is very very strong she's his servant um across race she's jewish uh while and across um uh you know sort of professional lines she's a servant who's you know helping him do forensic accounting right and so it's a, i think it's a really interesting magnifier on her as a you know taking this very minor character and all of a sudden you know injecting her into the story in ways that are subtle but also pretty significant yeah but would you say what uh what, do you think he fancies her like do you think that uh or that she fancies him do you think that there's a little bit of a connection happening there I would think so. It is not explicit. Um, but, and look, the line between being impressed with somebody you've never noticed and having a little bit of a crush um, is a fine one, I think. And um, the line between, in her case, uh, admiring him greatly and deeply sympathizing with the position that he's in uh, and having a bit of a crush is also a fine one. And so I think the show leaves it, uh, leaves it kind of ambiguous so far. Uh, the script writer in me says, of course, that's for the purpose that's setting up something that's going to happen in later episodes. Um, and Honestly, if there are any two characters that uh, in the show who deserve a good affair, um, uh, surely it is Danielle who, uh, you know, whose wife is sleeping with all the worst people in the town uh, and poor Sarah, who's, uh, you know, who doesn't seem to have uh, friends or uh, or and is existing in a very hostile world. So I wish them the best, and I certainly hope they <laughs> they have a little uh, tryst. Okay, I'm against this. Uh, you and I, our are, are, are mores on this are just out of whack, because Sarah is 
maybe like I was already skeeved out by the age difference between Larche and Hortense, uh, and I am I am further skeeved uh, out between by the age not, difference between I'm Sarah. Say, I'm not saying it's best practices. <laughs> I'm just like this is war for crying out loud, and and like who who is Sarah supposed to go have an affair with? I the I mean, gu- the guy booing at the movie theater, which is I think who she yeah, that, was, you know, that worked out real well for her. <laughs> um, you know, she's, uh, you know, she she's. I'm I, I, look. I am not a big proponent of intergenerational romance, but I'm saying this is 1941 in France. You take it where you can get it. Okay, I'm just gonna point out though that you're very against the Kurt Marie or the Kurt Lucien, uh, you know, romance where because like, it can get people killed. It okay. got it gets Kurt sent to the Eastern Front. Oh, that's like a fucking death sentence. Okay, well, I don't know if you've noticed, but 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 Larche's wife is like shacking up with the most vicious human alive. So, like, he I, have, I haven't exactly endorsed that. But I'm just saying, I'm just saying that Larche, uh, you know, and, and actually I'll just hit this plot point here. You know, w- one of the things that happens in this episode that I think is um, is interesting is that Hortense for I, – I, after, after taking great pains to make up this like story about her cousin and then no, she was really with Jean, which is already a bad thing. Now she just like comes out with it. Like, he's got patience waiting. She tells him he's got patience waiting. And then she just decides, you know what? What's happening with us, Daniel? I want to tell you, I'm having an affair with the German, uh, the most vicious German in town. Uh, and in, and so he is like per- – and he's personally betrayed by this. Um, I'm not sure – I'm not sure why he's so shocked by Hortense. Her her nature is now abundantly clear. Um, but I will say one of the things that is that he, he goes to Colwitz – uh, the the colonel, the German officer, and sa- and and says like, this guy's sleeping with my wife, uh, and that should stop. Um, and Kolwitz comes down on Mueller for it, and Mueller basically says, why would I listen to those guys? But it, but it gets through, like it runs the chain uh, there. But it never seems to occur to Daniel to be afraid. Whereas if I was in that situation, um. I think I would be nervous about the fact that my my wife was having an affair with somebody who would have now a tremendous amount of incentive to have me out of the way. Yeah, so I I think that's really interesting and I hadn't thought about it before this exact moment. Um so the following thoughts may be a little scattered, but I think Danielle understands at some instinctive level that he has a certain protexia, that it is convenient for everybody for there to be a mayor of this town who can talk to everybody, who can dine with the German officers and uh, and the German policemen, who uh, can talk to the commies because his brother is one of them, who can... Um, you know, who has a line directly to Vichy through the the uh, through the deputy prefect. I mean, it is convenient for everyone for Danielle Archer to exist. And whether he 
understands that at a conscious level or whether it just reduces his fear, I do think he operates with the understanding that that nobody wants anything to happen to him, which is, of course, why to jump to a different plot point, which I'm sure we'll discuss later, at the end of episode six, he volunteers himself as a hostage, um, uh, you know, because he kind of knows they're not going to shoot him. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think that's right. Uh, so... I, can I just, while we're on the Hortense-Daniel thing, I just think that this relationship is weird. Um, and also, she comes over to the house, like, in the later episode after she's kind of moved in with Muller, she's, or she's being put up at a hotel by him. Um, and she, like, comes in to, like, hang with Tikiero. Uh But this is one of the things, I think I might have mentioned it before, that just bugs me about... Um, that I just I find totally unbelievable in any context, including this war one, is that you basically adopt this kid. You go to all these great lengths to ensure that uh, nobody knows the truth and to make sure that he's yours. And then like she just like dips out on him, uh, and and Sarah is basically raising him. And she has this weird conversation with Daniel where he's kind of like, "Are you going to come back?" And she says. Which I don't even understand, like why he wants her back. But okay, he's saying uh, he's very tolerant. Maybe this is just a French thing. They're all very tolerant of the affairs. Like nobody ever suggests perhaps we should get divorced because of this, or perhaps this isn't working. Everyone's just like, "I'm having an affair." Like Schwartz is having an affair, and uh, well, divorce, divorce was mostly illegal at this point. Okay, um, I mean there there this is actually a. Issue that has been, and I don't know the social history of this well at all, but this is an issue that had been literally kicking around since the French Revolution. And the church had always managed to prevent dramatic liberalization of divorce laws. And I think that continued until after the war. Uh, it's an issue that I believe Simone de Beauvoir wrote about in The Second Sex in 1949. It's like it's a it's a it's like French divorce laws are, I, I think, part of the reason that the that the tolerance level exists. Yeah. Interesting, uh, because it's just it's just so weird where Larche is kind of saying you know, are you going to come back? And she's like, you know, I'm just just trying to figure myself out. I'm just, you know, I don't really know what's going on. And I'm, I'm like, and and they've got this kid that she just thinks she can show up and play. Anyway, the whole thing, bananas to me. Um, but, there, but there's one thing in that scene that's amazing, which is what he gets upset about. He's upset that Miller is paying the hotel bill. Yeah. Like um, that, you know, she like the rest he's tolerant of in a upset sort of way but the idea that his wife is a kept woman for another man offends him and he does not disguise his disgust at that yeah and that that seems to be what what sets him to go and tell Colwitz like to put an end to it um yeah it's the whole Hortense and um it's because he, there's this funny moment, too. Like, she tells Daniel, and then she goes back and tells Muller, like, I told Daniel. And he's like, 
Would you do that? Why doesn't anybody understand this is a toxic person? Um, but okay, whatever. Uh, whatever. I, okay, Sarah go understands that Sarah, she's a toxic Sarah person. Sarah does understand it. She gets it. Yeah. Um, as the as the as the woman de facto raising uh, Hortense's child with Daniel. Okay, so you just mentioned that Kirk got sent away to the Russian front, um, and I just want to close the loop on this plot point before moving on to a totally other other storyline, but. Um, part of the reason that this happens, and we talked about this last episode, was the fact that Janine was out for blood after the cake contest. And we weren't quite sure um, – or actually, you weren't quite sure because I did know but, – um, but how that retribution would manifest. And it appears to have manifested in Janine sending, like, the the – the 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 cutouts for magazine style uh, ransom notes to these people to like out them right so she sends she sends a note to Barrio about the fact that Marie or sorry Lucienne is sleeping with a German soldier and, and then he she, burns it then he burns it up he's not gonna he's not gonna out her and Janine comes to check to see if he isn't isn't he sufficiently angry and outraged to have learned this like sidles in and she sees like the the partially burned letter in the trash can um and so then she tries another tack and sends one of these letters to Colwitz himself um and outs Kurt to his commanding officer which is what gets him sent to the Russian front because prior to this he was he had a plan to to uh, he was going to get transferred to back to Germany because he was a good soldier and he was going to send for Marie. And, oh, God, I'm just like why am I I'm so into Marie? I can't like remember Lucienne's name. Uh, he's going to send for Lucienne and like introduce her to his parents and she's going to learn German and they're going to live happily ever after and she's ready to go. But Janine torches the whole thing. Yes, uh, Janine. Uh writes to, sends another one of these Poison Pell anonymous letters to the German uh, commander who uh, locks Kurt up and uh, has him transferred to Krakow, to the, uh, uh, which is, you know, uh, on, the eastern, on the eastern side. Uh, the Percentage of German soldiers who died during the war, who died on the Eastern Front, is extremely high. Uh, being, they use being sent to Russia as almost a code in this. And of course, it gets much worse when the Germans get bogged down in, in Stalingrad, at Stalingrad in 43. But, um, the, you know, the Western Front at this stage this is before Normandy, of course. And so the Western Front is largely peaceful. There's no fighting going on. Uh, there's a, a supposedly a, a mustering for an invasion of Britain. But this, of course, never materializes. And so the Western Front is mostly stable um, until Normandy, uh, with the exception of there was a fair bit of uh, of live action uh, first in in Africa, North Africa, and then in Sicily uh, and in in the Italian Peninsula. But mostly, if you're in the, on the Western Front here now, you're not seeing active fighting. If you are on the Eastern Front, this is the height of uh, Operation Barbarossa. Uh, Russia is um, losing huge amounts of territory and um and the casualties particularly on the russian side are 
you know, unlike anything ever in the history of warfare before, uh, except, you know, like the Psalm and, and, um, but this is one of the, the ugliest, I think this is the single ugliest, uh, set of battles uh, over time in kind of the history of the world. Um, and, so information is trickling back about that, and people know that getting sent to Russia is a really, really bad thing, um, and um, and uh, it is used as punishment. Um, and in this case, it is used as uh, punishment for uh, and wholly anticipatable punishment. I mean, Kurt, they're keeping it secret for a reason. Um, uh, an important thing about this scene where uh, at the preparation for the Catherineettes um, party where um, Janine, where Berio in, I think his finest moment so far in the show uh, confronts Janine about it and says, you know, I know it was you. And, uh, this is Berio at his most attractive and least least self-interested. He's angry. Um, and the script writers here do something, I think, really, really interesting in her response, which is uh, she can't accuse him of being a Jew because he's not. Uh, she accuses him of Jew-loving because he wants to have Mr. Ms., uh, Madame Morhange sing, and Morhange is a Jew. And then she accuses him of being a Freemason um, and uh, talks about how when the National Revolution from Vichy happens, and remember, she is the daughter of somebody never described in detail, but who is... Uh, a Vichy muckety muck, a businessman who's very high up and connected in Vichy. So she is here spouting the rhetoric of Vichy and we're going to deal with the Jews and the Freemasons and the undesirable elements. And this is actually extremely accurate. Um, Freemasonry was, other than Jews, one of the big bugaboos of, um, of, you know, Nazi and um, and you know allied fascist and authoritarian movements, and so when you're confronted by somebody who's a you know a schoolmaster who's clearly not a Jew, what can you accuse him of? Well, you can accuse him of being a Freemason, uh, and this is uh, you know, and she says you know we're going to clean up, and there's going to be no place in the new France for people like you. Uh, and this is, I think, a very good... And by the way, that trope that, you know, Freemasons and Jews, it's like, it remains, you know, if you go to the far right corners of of the interwebs now, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world are still a little bit focused on Freemasonry and these idea that there are kind of secret societies that secretly rule everything and control things. And so this is a, a very accurate account of Vichy rhetoric from that period and Vichy obsessions, right? You need a term that includes secret collaborators, secret societies who aren't Jews. Jews do 
Jews are, of course, a secret international society themselves in, in the right-wing imagination uh, and some parts of the left-wing imagination. But, uh, um, but you need a term that, in, that inspires that same account of internationalism and cabals and conspiracy for non-Jews. And one is communism, which, of course, had an element of truth to it. And the other was Freemasonry. And so I just flag that for you, that that this is the script writers being uh, very sophisticated about uh, Vichy-era ideology of the far right. Yeah. You know, um, what I loved about this second episode is it it does give you a whiff of Berrios' politics. Um, and it's not just her accusation, which you're sort of like, I don't even know. Like, for me, that kind of like went over my head. Like, what's she even – you know from context she's accusing him of being something bad that could get him in trouble. But he kind of rolls off him. But the, there's this scene at the end of the second episode. It's a great scene. Um, and dancing is clearly verboten, just like in Footloose. Uh, and, um, and so – this idea of Morhange singing, uh, there's also then this this sort of dancing and, and you know, he's being funny. Like you just – this is – I remember starting to like love Barry out during this time because his politics was clearly that of a kind of snarky way of looking at – like you can tell suddenly that he has a resistance to what is going on and it becomes apparent in these sort of jokingly little ways like we're going to – if if this person is singing and your body spontaneously starts to move and perhaps you – you know, he's just sort of joking around about, you know, we're going to dance. But he, yeah, he's telling them to dance. <laughs> yeah, he's telling them to dance. And he's, he's giving them permission and he's doing it in a – anti-authoritarian liberal way, you know, and he he knowingly asks the Jew who who lost her job that he now holds to sing at this event. Um, and then he tells people to dance when she's singing. It's a pretty brave moment. Yeah, if the stakes weren't so high, you'd call it cheeky. But the stakes are like life and death, so it actually is quite brave. And it's, but it's, it, but it also has that sort of light touch where you've got, you know, Servier is there going, is he drunk? Like, why is he acting like this? Because but then Servier dances with his wife. Yeah. Um, and you know that's a, and so he he does it in a way that's subtle enough and gentle enough that he that he kind of breaks down the authoritarianism a little bit and it's clearly it's sort of a joke and maybe he's drunk and so people don't mind even the authority figures and by the way they really want to dance so they use it as an excuse (laughs) and it's a very it's a very savvy uh set of moves and you kind of wish he were more of a politician and less of a schoolmaster Mm, interesting interesting uh, also of note in that scene um, is Janine, who is just, you know, appalled by everything. Then as people do start dancing uh, and the tide turns, she looks around for her husband, who she kind of makes locks eyes with, like, shall we dance? And he just shakes his head in this way that is um, he has no interest in dancing with her, uh, which is good because she has just sent 
uh, someone to their death, basically, um, with her petty uh, revenge notes. Um, okay, so let's talk about – We have a, there's a whole other side – the main plot of these two episodes, yeah, that, you might say. You might. You might. Uh, is about the communists. And as they continue to plan uh, this is, this this attack on the German soldiers, which uh, – or the German officers, which has been happening in other places, which is why you have these hostages being rounded up. Um, but they've got to pull off a daring mission, right? So if they're going to kill somebody, they need a gun. And so um, Mrs. – so we've got the woman whose son was malnourished who then turns up again at the communist meeting. Turns out she's the housekeeper at the uh, – at uh, what's it called? Mrs. Uh, Bertas. Bertas, which is the um, – the, the brothel. The brothel. And so she's the housekeeper there. And so she knows when the German soldiers come in to have sex and what they do with their holstered weapons while they're doing it. Um, and so they – then there's 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 – it's important that there are three keys – to the service entrance of the brothel, of which she has one, Mrs. Berta has one, the owner of the brothel, and one is gone missing. Nobody can find it. And so she sees that as the cover um, to suggest that anybody could come in and steal the gun, which leads to like a pretty, a both funny but sort of but, but, but tense scene where Marcel, posing as a plumber, goes to the brothel, sneaks in, and has to kind of sneak in while uh the german officer and the prostitute are having sex and because there's a mirror uh so it's like ends up being like one of these scenes that the show does really well where it's both tense but kind of funny um so they're 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 having sex but there's and there's a mirror so she sees marcel in the mirror and so she switches positions uh to make sure that the german officer doesn't catch him and so it's like one of these little instances of somebody kind of helping. By the way, these uh, prostitutes at the brothel are like basically so far some of the best resistance yeah. uh, warriors that, that we've got on the show. Um, and so Marcel is able to grab the gun, complete the mission, get out of there, uh, and take it back to the other communists. Um, but the gun being missing is a real problem. Yes. Yeah, so – uh, I believe I'm, I may be wrong about this, but I believe that the officer whose gun is stolen is also sent to sent Russia. Sent to Russia, a hundred percent. Yep. And um, so this is a uh, uh, a really interesting portrait, right? So it is hard enough for them to get guns. They there is not. This is the communist network now, and they have no guns, right? They're uh, so they're trying to steal individual firearms and they're counting bullets. Um, so when they steal this guy's gun and, you know, the, the, they can't really do any training with it because they can't, they use up their ammunition. And so the, there's actually a scene where the 12 year old communist commander <laughs> is trying to, who clearly doesn't know how to shoot, is trying to use the gun to, uh, you know, trying to practice and shoot a bottle and he can't hit it. Um, and they stop the training because they're like running out of bullets and they need them for the actual assassination. Um, the, the significance of the third key is critical here because when Heinrich Müller uh, interrogates uh, uh, the 
uh, the woman whose information was available. It turns out the third key is not missing after all. It is found, and that means that the only way this person could get in, uh, which is Marce- to say Marcel, is for her to have given him his her key, which, of course, she denies. Uh, and then he tortures out of her the truth, meaning that Marcel is now compromised to the Nazis. And then she goes and tells her his brother that she's out at him. So the mayor knows that he's involved somehow, and the Nazis also know. Yeah, there's an amazing information channel and network between sort of the Hortense sleeping with... Uh, with Mueller and then with so the 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 woman who has been visiting Daniel because her son was malnourished goes to him because Heinrich burns her with a cigarette, which is signature torture move. Uh, and she's got an infected, you know, open wound that she goes to see Daniel about, um, at which point she confesses. She she lies at first. She didn't like show up there to tell him. Um, I, I do think that one of the funny, uh, again, uh, funny tense scenes is Mueller is like, interrogating both the prostitute and the cleaning woman, uh, our communist, and the, the prostitute who showed that r- real, like, uh, a real sense of understanding during the arrest of the gun suddenly, like, seems to have no sense of what she ought not offer and, like, very helpfully is like, oh, the key's been found. I can go get it for you. Yeah, but she the, has no idea she has what no the idea. significance no. of the key is. She doesn't. But I will just say um, that, that you know, it, it, they actually set it up by um, – by the, the, the communist woman saying, you know, that she's not the brightest bulb early on so that you are kind of aware when she just offers this that it doesn't occur to her. Just like say less. Say less in this moment. You don't need to. I don't want to do it. Don't help. Um, so anyway, um, but 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 yeah, so 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 in this now information chain, uh, Daniel knows a lot about what's happening with Marcel, which is that Marcel is planning something because he's gone out to steal a gun. Um, and uh, as a result, like Hortense becomes this go-between um, where you can't and uh, well, I don't want to get ahead of but but it, it just is it is it is worth noting that there is an open information channel that presents a lot of problems. Uh, with this Hortense Mueller thing. Um, in some ways, it saves Marcel, too, um, right? Like, uh, because Hortense, you know, doesn't want anything to happen to Marcel. Um, and so she does kind of use some attempt to get Mueller to change course. But the the change of course is that he's now figured out like well i'll follow marcel and i'll figure out this whole network and i'll bust them wide open and i'm gonna get a big promotion yeah so he of course thinks and by the way just as an investigative matter that's exactly the right thing to do you uh you have somebody who you know is part of a network so you watch him like leave it to leave it to a sadistic german to be like uh uh, no, the first thing we do is arrest the guy and torture him uh, rather than what would be good investigative practice to say, uh, OK, the, the first thing we do is we follow him carefully over a long period of time, map the network, and then we can round it up. Uh, that said, um, it f- falls apart because 
uh, the the woman who dropped her name proceeds to inform his brother that she did. He then tells uh, Marcel, who then alerts the, you know, loses his tail, grabs Suzanne and uh, and goes and informs the 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 cadre. And so they've they actually take pretty good steps. And that leads to the climactic decision, which is, okay, fall back on plan A, just grab a bunch of hostages, um, which is how the episode ends. Uh, they've grabbed a bunch of hostages, including the woman who, um, who, uh, ratted, uh, Marcel out. And to be fair to her, she was under extreme duress. He's burning her arm with cigarettes and he threatens her kid. He brings her son in, which is like, I, 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 I think there's, there's this natural tendency or maybe, maybe nobody else does. It's just me. When somebody's in a position to either give up information or, or, or hold their tongue, I'm always thinking like, how would I do in this situation? Um, how would I react? And like, <laughs> Whether I have no idea how true this is, but my my assessment of myself is that I would be able to handle the cigarette burning, and that I would not talk. Uh, I would crack open on the kid, right? Yeah, like the second I mean, they've got your kid, it's over. Uh, look, I don't think you can blame her at all, and she actually does something very brave, which is to go to uh, Danielle Larche under the guise of seeking medical attention for the burns on her arm tells him what happened and tells him that she dropped his brother's name and that allows him to tip them off. But um, we should talk about what Larche does at the end of the episode. Okay. Um, because I have some, some, some texts on this. Um, so at the end of the episode, he says goodbye to Sarah and puts on his hat and coat and walks into the German high command, uh, the local command headquarters, walks up to Kolwitz and says, I'm your hostage. Well, he says, he says, I've read your code and I know that you have to accept this. And I'm telling you, I want to put myself in the place of the hostages. Right. So I want to read you something. Please. Uh, and this is, I'm going to read you two things. Uh, so this is from a book called Policing and War in Europe. Um, and uh, it reads, um, In the hours following the attack of the 3rd of January, the regional prefect, Joseph Rivaland, was summoned to the Hotel Noy where the German general staff instructed him to draw up a list of hostages who would be shot in the event of further incident. In application of a government circular of the 7th of May, 1942, Rivalon refused and, taking a courageous attitude, added that the only hostage he would name was himself. The Germans, irritated by the prefect's intransigence, declared a state of, of siege and announced that the Marseille police were to pass under direct SS control. So that is uh, one little text. 
Here is another text from a book called France, the Dark Years by the historian Julian Jackson. This one's a little bit longer. Um, and we'll give some texture to these. So these, these, this issue of reprisals for communists um, doing attacks was a real thing. Um, and uh, reads... If these measures proved insufficient to stop the German policy of shooting hostages, Vichy at least wanted to limit the unpopularity of that policy. On the 23rd of October, the government proposed cooperation between the French and German police to avoid the Germans shooting the wrong people. Um, prefects were instructed to hand the Germans lists of those arrested as communists, this was only a step away from the French government selecting French citizens to be shot by the Germans. Anti-communism blunted Vichy's recognition of the invidious territory into which it was straying. But the resistance attacks continued, and the Germans went on exacting their revenge. After a German soldier was shot in Bordeaux on the 20th of October and another at Nantes the same day, the next day. So the Nantes attack is referred to explicitly in the show. It turns out to be a real thing. 98 French hostages were executed. These executions became particularly controversial because Pichot, having managed to get a number, the number of victims reduced, was later accused of having selected the names of communists from among the hostages. He had apparently asked the Germans to spare the names of some people with heroic war records, and then presented with another list containing the names mainly of communists, he kept silent. The executions caused a wave of national outrage, and Pétain decided to present himself as a hostage at the demarcation line. He was talked out of the idea but news of it spread sufficiently for Patan to secure credit for it without having to ca had to carry it out. In fact, the German reprisals did not let up. 95 more hostages were shot after another resistance attack on the 28th of November. In total, 471 hostages were executed by the Germans between September 1941 and May 1942. Very interesting. Uh, well, go ahead. Yeah, tell. No, I was just going to. So that gives you some background, both on the policy that the the show is depicting, uh, including in this region, uh, and the what specifically uh, Larche does at the end of this episode, which is that he walks in and presents himself as a hostage, which was something that at least one regional leader in fact did that's the the significance of the first text but also that petain himself uh uh contemplated doing and was sort of loosely credited with doing even though he himself never did it yeah so i'll i'll tell you part of what is the, I, thank you for reading that that was um Look, look at you bringing bringing resources to the conversation. Um, so this this idea of – and I don't think it's a spoiler to, to talk about this. The thing about the show that most attracts me to it um, is that right now we are watching 
how people react under duress, right, and what decisions that they make. But we know from history that at some point they will be judged by the decisions that they make in these moments. And I think um, this notion of list making comes up again and again. Um, and we've already had it a couple times in the show, right? Very early on, there is um, the rounding up, the creating a list of the the townspeople, the men who are um, like family men to put them in the position of, of you know, finding the person who stole the I – mean, the, the, the list making and the hostage taking, that stuff constantly falls to Daniel um, and to a lesser degree um, the deputy prefect, which puts them in this sort of god – position and um and so i just it's worth it's 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 an interesting thing for you to really draw out of because i can't tell you how important um these things become later on um as people are evaluating how people behaved uh during these moments um but this is this is daniel there's a you are starting to see right And, and this is as the as the 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 killing of the German officers is accelerating just as it's intended to. The way that the Germans are becoming harsher with the French people, uh, which is creating more pressure on the characters to choose a side, right? To decide how they're going to behave. And so one of the some of what's interesting that's happening is watching somebody like Berriot or watching Daniel or watching Marie as as things start to push them kind of deciding how they're going to react and what side they're going to be on um i don't want to i don't that's that actually would normally be kind of a good place to leave it but i want to i want to just point out one plot point that 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 happened um that we didn't mention which is that marcel and suzanne uh finally consummate uh this this thing that's been going on between them in this episode and uh, and that's bad. Uh, I mean, here's the thing. That, but then I'll just go back to where we started in the episode, right? Also forboten. They're not supposed to be doing this. And yet, this is the most sane relationship in this entire – it's the most non-toxic, sane, like, you guys belong together relationship uh, in the show. So on your point about uh, people being judged for drawing up these lists – I want to close with a totally crazy story that illustrates this point. Um, so, and this is going to sound weird uh, and crazy. It is, um, but it will. Uh, I promise it'll come back to your your point. Uh, in uh, 2012, in the New York Times, I read uh, the greatest obituary I have ever read, uh, uh, which was for a man named Robert de la Rochefoucauld, um, who is actually a direct lineal descendant of uh, the great Rochefoucauld of of the 17th century. And Robert de la Rochefoucauld, um, uh, uh, who was a uh, is probably sort of one of the most courageous and celebrated uh, French resistance fighters. He, uh, the obituary, which uh, we can, inc- I-, I can include in the show notes, is 
one of the most swashbuckling things. He literally faced a German firing squad and escaped. He dressed as a nun and escaped from prison. He was like, you know, all the while working for the British. Uh, Fabulous story. And here is the weird part about it. Later in his life, uh, he uh, spoke out in defense of a man named Maurice Papon, who was uh, accused by the French of being a war criminal. And Papon was a, uh, a uh, accused uh, and convicted, ultimately, uh, and of choosing, he was a police official, uh, and he was accused of um, uh deporting French Jews to be killed in concentration camps while he was a Vichy official. Um, and uh, De La Rochefoucauld, who had impeccable credentials as a resistance figure, um, not only testified on Papon's behalf that he was a courageous resistance person who had, as a Vichy official, uh, helped the resistance and the allies, um, but he then, when Papon made a run for it and went to Switzerland, uh, he used De La Rochefoucauld's passport to register in a hotel, and De La Rochefoucauld had given him his passport. And so I've thought about this a lot over the years, like, how should I understand a... And De La Rochefoucauld was incredibly courageous and, um, like the obit is worth reading just for his swashbuckling ex- ex- And the answer is maybe Papin had a little bit of Daniel Larcher in him, right? He's trying to manage a difficult situation. The Germans need lists of Jews to, to kill. He's providing those lists of Jews. He's also helping De La Rochefoucauld on the side. That strikes me as, now, how do we evaluate that morally and legally? I, I, I don't know, but like, I can totally see the argument that he is both a war criminal and somebody who helped, you know, somebody who was incredibly courageous and, you know, in the resistance. And I think there are these people who did both. Um, and I have no reason to doubt uh, De La Rochefoucauld's account of what Papon did. And I also have no reason to doubt that he caused a lot of Jews to get killed um, and deserve to be convicted and punished for that. Um, So, yeah, your point that eventually all of these decisions about who is on what list, that is also a true thing that happened that there was accountability for, for probably not enough people. Yeah, well, you can see, and I guess... um again, without getting ahead of ourselves, how Daniel has put himself in a position where he has to make decisions. He's being told he has to make decisions. And so the humanist in him is constantly trying to figure out how to limit damage to people. But he is still making decisions that lead to damage for some. And whereas somebody else who just kept their head down was involved in, you know, was in none of it, maybe even just kind of casually participated, was a collaborator, uh, maybe turned in a Jewish neighbor or two. Uh, they 
are never put in a position to make a list. And and so it's just it, this is this is I think um and also the these moves that Daniel makes that are self self-sacrificing. Um and also if you argue that the married men with families and with great war records should not be on the list uh and you thereby save them are you in fact by doing that uh accountable for the list of people who are communists who are on the list that's right and we see at the beginning of the episode the very beginning is 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 Marcel reading a list of the name of people who were executed as a result of the dead officers and he just keeps reading that they were communists you know and he is i think in some ways it's i don't know if it's dawning on him because he seems to know it but it clearly it's emotionally very taxing for him but you know what he's realizing is like when it comes to finding the people who are expendable for these things uh they are killing us now to be fair or I don't know about fair, but like the reality was it was the communists who were the ones shooting the officers. So it also there's a reason that they were being targeted, right? They were the early parts of the resistance. Right. But they were not they were being targeted um, not on the basis of their individual participation, but on their basis right. of their uh, affiliation. Affiliation. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I'm just going to throw out one other uh, smallish thing about the episode, which is. Um, there's a lot of names thrown around of French things. Like there was a French places that actually, um, are things now. So like at one point they talk about, uh, something happening at Chardonnay and Chateaubriand and they talk about something at Artois and I just keep hearing like beer, wine. Well, you know, a lot of French wines are named for regions and, uh, you know, de Gaulle said, uh, it, it was impossible to govern a country with 350 kinds of cheese. Um, <laughs> so uh, at least that's the legend. I don't know if he really said it. Um, well, we should wrap up, Sarah. Yeah, great talk. Um, and we will be back next week to do episodes seven and eight. We are on the back half of season two, both the shows and our own. Uh, we will see if we get picked up for season three. And in the meantime, Edith, take us home. Nous nous aimions bien tendrement, comme t'aimes tous les amants. Et puis un jour, tu m'as quitté, depuis je suis...